Okay, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for for making this possible, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about what we do, and then a little bit about, and then more about what what is happening in Iran, and actually offer some historical uh, perspective on it from within the Iranian context itself, also. So. Um, in uh, 2010, we launched this initiative called Tavana, using the internet to allow people inside Iran to do the things that they can't do in the physical world, in the real world. Um, so we provided, uh, as a start, we provided a live virtual classes uh, to students who would come in anonymously, even the teachers wouldn't know the identities of their students, learning about democracy, human rights, really a lot of courses on those two big, big general themes. Uh, we still do that, um, and the, the offerings have really expanded. But as the internet has evolved since we've, we uh, launched and since um, as uh, internet access proliferated and smartphones proliferated inside uh, Iran, to give you a perspective, in 2009, the Green Movement, about one million people had smartphones. Now that number is between 40 to 50 million people having smartphones inside the country. As this uh, technological development happened, we really um, moved on to uh, social media and started using satellite TV, so kind of a hybrid approach of many different things. So we continued with those live classes in civic education and civil society capacity building, learning all about the things that, that are denied and censored inside the country. So we had lots of offerings, for example, on Holocaust, on the history of the Holocaust, women's rights, LGBT rights, religious freedom within the Iranian context, persecution of the Baha'i, a lot of different aspects of democracy. Andrew has taught at Tavana, actually, about free and fair elections, democracy writ large. Continued with all that, as I mentioned, but really using social media now. Um, we are reaching millions of people every day through social media. So those of you who are sort of tech savvy in that regard, uh, there's an app inside the country that is not filtered, that is free for Iranians to use, at least so far. It's called Telegram. And just to give you a sense of perspective, just one of our posts on Telegram during the Iran protest period the last couple of months early January especially, just one of our posts had three million viewers. So uh, quite a lot. And um, that's what we do. We, we, tr we make everything that we offer open access. So even if you're not in a live classroom, we have the video and the podcast and the, and the slide deck and the readings and everything from that class available to the entire public without a login on our website. But we also, um, especially because this is the way that young people uh, do things, we push those out through social media. So the website really is kind of like a warehouse or an archive of, of what we've done. But it's really through social media that people are accessing what's, what's available, what we have for them. We do a lot of... Um, stimulating of civic dialogue. So uh, prominent dissidents will send us their uh, video statements. We'll push those out on social media, get responses, reactions. Um, right now, during this, this high protest period, uh, we were receiving every day hundreds of videos from 
people who were protesting, witnessing protests, labor strikes, um, the women who were taking off their hijabs and protesting the mandatory uh, forced hijab laws. Um, so really being a conduit, um, although we're physically outside of Iran, being a conduit so everyone inside the country is connected to each other. Of course, state media is not broadcasting any of any of this, but because of the internet, really everybody knows what's going on. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what is what is happening on the ground. Um, it's really the culmination of things that have been happening at a much, much lower level, lower volume uh, over the last 12 months. Those of you who might be Sovietologists or interested in, in Soviet history or democratic transitions in general, we are very looking very much like the Soviet Union in 1988-89 right now. The world is in a very different place. And democracy in general has had a big at a macro level, a, a big regression. So while in 88, 89, we were seeing the world kind of move in this direction, move in a big wave of, of transitions and the toppling of um, totalitarian regimes and dictatorships. And right now, kind of everyone, I would say, ambivalent, skeptical, pessimistic about ideas uh, about democracy and democratic transition, which regimes like the Iranian regime have really uh, latched onto and manipulated. So for the last few years, there has been an overt message crafted, cultivated, a disinformation campaign, if you will, by the Iranian government that, uh, to the effect of, be careful, you will end up like Syria. Be careful if you, if you stand up for your rights, if you demand more, if you aspire, if you want democracy, uh, you're going to get, you're going to become like Syria. And it, implicit in that is a threat. We will do to you what we did to Syrian society. Of course, isn't that, they're never going to say that. But um, Syria is Syria because of the Iranian regime, because of the support for for Assad because of uh, many years of, of policy that have, have cultivated a pride, actually, even among people who consider themselves intellectuals, journalists, even some people who consider themselves civil society activists that, well, uh, Qasem, Qasem Soleimani, the IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guard commander operating in Syria, well, he's really furthering the national interest. So very effective, very effective propaganda campaign, uh, very much like how Putin is operating uh, with regards to Ukraine, cultivating this support for himself by having everyone's eyes on the outside rather than their own problems and the, their, their own rotting away of the um, government in terms of, of deep, deep corruption and also the lack of basic, basic freedoms inside. So about the corruption, how, how, how long do you think I should talk, Andrew? Uh, ten minutes. Okay. okay. Or longer if you want. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, I'm not used to talking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, in, in many ways, all of this started because of a collapse in credit institutions in Iran. So people 
think of the a context where there's massive inflation and so people were putting their money away into these credit institutions that were popping up all over the place, giving them 20 to 30 percent interest on an annual basis. So you could say, well, why, why would you go for that? You know, it seems kind of risky, but in a way, because everybody was doing it, whoever didn't do that was really suffering by 20 to 30 percent, if you know what I mean. So everybody was putting their money away into these credit institutions. They turned out to be basically a Ponzi scheme. Once they were lacking the resources to pay people back who wanted to take the money out, it all fell apart. People weren't even getting the original savings that they had put in back. These are people who are just very uh, middle class, working class, working hard for their money. A lot of them um, would, would go to the banks and some of them women, crying, taking videos of themselves, saying, now what do I do? You know, I have five kids at home. Um, my husband's not working. This is, the, this is our entire life savings, and it's, it's completely gone. Those kinds of videos sparked resentment at large. And as you can imagine, it sparked other people trying thinking, oh, I should get my money out, because what's going to, you know, what's going to happen? So the, it was a vicious cycle. Things became worse. That was the original spark, and then people pro protested in very, I, I think you probably saw on TV, in a very angry way, a uh, very resentful way. But at the same time, their slogans were not like the slogans of the 2009 Green Movement, in the sense that the Green Movement was uh, in support of two candidates who were regime insiders who were denied a free and fair vote. This time, the slogans were, were tired and resentful and demanding of all of you to get to, to leave. Uh, so as much, if not more, slogans against reformists themselves and not just what, you know, in the West are call, call, called uh, hardliners. Um, this was really significant for a lot of um, for a lot of people focused on democratic change. This is what we were always waiting for, really, for for uh, broad-based civic mobilization among the among all kinds of people. Over 80 cities were participating in these protests. Um, in terms of the, the the their nature, the the widespread. Um, collapse of fear in society. It was really significant for us to see. And the slogans were also different from 2009 in the sense that they, they hearkened back to pre-revolutionary history, pre-revolutionary values. Reza Shah, the first Shah, was being exalted in many slogans, uh, wanting that kind of um, modern uh, pro cosmopolitan, pro-West, uh, pro-modernity, um, uh, view on life and 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 the rule of law and the basic freedoms, equality, coinciding with all of this. So that's sort of the working class revolting. Um, a lot of slogans about corruption. A lot of really. Iranians are very good about making slogans and poetry and a lot of literary references to uh, despotism. Uh, alongside all of this. Uh, a, a huge campaign for women's rights in the form of women taking off their t taking off their hijab, which again was another huge wall of fear that nobody expected could come down so easily until it did. One woman stood on a on a stand in, in, in the middle of Tehran, took off her hijab, had her hair showing completely, and took 
took her scarf and put it on a stick and just stood there. Um, and she was eventually uh, arrested. Nobody knew where she was for a while, but she was eventually released, actually. Uh, a lot of us thought, well, you know, might never see her again. Uh, she was released, and but many other women took her spot and became it became a movement that really um, I think it's it's countless now the number of women throughout the country who have taken off their hijab and they take videos of themselves walking through town uh, towns um, talking about what this what this uh, law means to them and why breaking it why, why disobeying it in a nonviolent civic civil way is important to them or just standing in the middle of, of uh, town squares and places with high visibility, like in the middle of freeways, and other people are, are um, videotaping them. And again, I can't emphasize enough how much this stuff is traveling through social media. So average Iranians, people who may have not really be politically active, very kind of um, apathetic even, are seeing on their social media feeds um, something about a, a strike at a factory, and then uh, some of these women who are protesting the way they are, and then like a video from a dissident uh, criticizing and critiquing the regime's actions, and then you know the reformists trying to, to maneuver themselves and figure out how to respond to all of this. So that would be a very typical uh, social media feed right now for an Iranian who's not even really politically interested to be political. Um, okay, so those are some those are some basic themes, and then we can get into more. But the, the the actions that are being taken right now, and again, you know, it's very much like the the collapse of any totalitarian regime. All of these different kinds of mobilization, this standing up for rights, is about pressing for accountability government accountability, uh, popular sovereignty, you know, the, the deciding, people deciding for themselves what uh, they can do and, wh and what their rights should be, equality. And all of that has roots in the 1906 constitutional revolution in Iran. Um, that was very much a Magna Carta kind of uh, movement for making the king accountable to the rule of law, uh, having a parliament, having people have equality, a sense of being able to rely on the law, uh, due process, um, uh, and, and bat maybe perhaps more than anything battling corruption. It does not have to do with the 1979 revolution, and if anything, the slogans are uh, very overtly anti-1979 revolution. A lot of the slogans are, oh, what a mistake we made. Oh, what a mistake we made with the revolution. So it's interesting that the most recent thing that a country has experienced is not necessarily its most progressive. It's not necessarily its most hopeful. Um, Afghanistan and Iran are, are two countries where it's very much possible to have something good and, and, and really destroy it and go back in a severe and very fundamental way in terms of civil and political liberties. So the big hope now is that um, with a transition, there can be, uh, well, truth, there can be an understanding of all that's happened in the last four decades, but that we can go back to those values of 1906 and basically the, the, the universal uh, values of liberalism and universal human rights and, and to create a constitution that um, enshrines uh, the separation of religion and state and, and basic equalities and separation of powers. Thank you very much.